Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Lamb, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Beast. September 30, 1938. It's one of those days that will live in infamy. On that date, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain signed an agreement with Adolf Hitler. That document has been known as the Munich Pact, and knowing that Britain and Europe were weary of war, and joined by Italy and France, it was agreed to surrender parts of Czechoslovakia to Germany in exchange for an agreement that Hitler would not invade any more European countries. The very famous scene of Prime Minister Chamberlain stepping off the plane in London, waving that document in his hand and proclaiming, peace in our time, that's always going to be remembered. It turns out that one can't appease evil. Chamberlain believed that giving Hitler what he wanted would then stop his aggression. But evil never responds either to pleading or to appeasement or to reason. Evil responds to but one thing, and that's authority. The fourth vision in Revelation 12 to 14, the visions that describe our spiritual warfare, is to many people the most terrifying of them all. This vision describes the rise of Antichrist, or as he has been called in this passage, the beast. We've already noticed that 1 John tells us that many antichrists have already come, and I would suppose that if I had been alive during the rise of Nazi Germany and heard of the persecution of the Jewish people and the destruction of the church and the replacement of the cross of Jesus with the hooked cross of the Nazis, I probably would have concluded that this indeed was the antichrist. But although many antichrists have come, Revelation 13, 1 to 10 describes the greatest manifestation of evil in human history. This is Satan's answer to the Messiah. This is his plan to wrest the earth from God and to rule it himself. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Now, this passage we've just read is not just a basic description of the Antichrist. 
This passage gives us insight into how Satan deceives and also how he responds to those who are not deceived, but who resist his designs. In order to understand what we've just read, I'm going to divide this passage into three sections. Verses 1 to 4 gives us a description of the beast. Then verses 5 to 8 portray what the beast is up to or tells us the activity of the beast. And then finally, verses 9 to 10 describe the believer's response to the beast. So let's return to the first four verses, the verses that describe the beast. I notice at least four descriptions of the beast. So first, would you notice that he rises out of the community of the nations? Verse 1 tells us that he arises out of the sea. And back in Revelation 11, verse 7, the beast was said to rise out of the bottomless pit where he makes war on the two witnesses. But here he rises out of the sea. In Daniel 7, we read of four beasts that also come out of the sea. And there, they represent four successive world empires. You know, a great many Bible teachers understand the sea to refer to the agitated, always tumultuous surface of unregenerate humanity. Isaiah 57 verse 20 says that the wicked are like the tossing sea, and then add its waters toss up mire and dirt. And this is the place that has no peace, always turmoil, always crisis. You know, the human heart looks for an end to this confusion, this chaos, this uproar, and it would seem that the beast rises out of the desire for chaos to end. He rises out of the hope of the human race that there would be peace. You know, the second thing that we learn about the beast is that when he ascends to power, that he is the embodiment of the greatest powers the earth has ever seen. He has 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 crowns. And after that, we're told that he seems like a leopard. He has the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. Again, we should note that all of these are images that are borrowed directly from the book of Daniel. In fact, in this case, in chapter 7. In Daniel's vision of four successive empires to come, he notes that the first is like a lion. The second is like a bear, he says. The third like a leopard. And then the fourth, the most terrifying one of all, we are told that that one has ten horns. So you can see at the very outset, since so much of what we read in Revelation directly mirrors Daniel, we have to assume that the key to understanding this vision is found there in the book of Daniel. You know, in Daniel's vision, the ten horns are identified as ten kings, and so it seems very likely that the ten crowns on the ten horns are ten kings who support the beast. The seven heads, well, we are given a hint about that if you go forward to Revelation 17. There we are told in verse 7 that the seven heads represent seven historic kings, that is, kings that have already reigned in the past, of which the beast is the seventh and the last in a line of successive kings, or perhaps even in a line of successive world empires. The ten horns are ten contemporary kings who grant the beast his power. That is, they are allied with him. They form a union of ten kings. Well, I hope you're not confused, but putting all this data together, we should note that the beast to come, that is the Antichrist, not only arises out of the community of nations, but he is the culmination of all the evil empires in world history. Each empire has had varied degrees of evil, but this one combines all of them in the most wicked empire the world has ever seen. 
The third thing we learn about this beast is that he is both a counterfeit deity and a counterfeit messiah. Verse 2 reminds us that it may be that ten powerful kings do support and give power to this beast, but the final explanation of that power is the dragon or is Satan himself. But verse 3 tells us that one of its heads seems to have been wounded, but that it was miraculously healed. And in consequence of that, the whole world marvels and begins to worship the beast. Some Bible teachers argue this is merely a reference to a historical event, an event that early Christians would have understood quite well. When the Roman emperor Nero died, all manner of rumors circulated that he was not actually dead, but that he was going to make a comeback and lead a great army against Rome and recapture his power. And furthermore, because Nero was so vicious in the past that he even killed his own mother, he was often referred to as the beast. But of course, that's not what Revelation is referring to. Nero never did make a comeback. He remained safely dead, even though there were some ancient imposters who claimed that they were Nero. Now, this event refers to something that's going to happen in the future. You know, I, for my part, see no point in speculating how this would happen. Such speculation can only lead to silliness and all manner of confusion. God will reveal these matters in due time. We, we need not concern ourselves with that. But I do notice a remarkable parallel here. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was crucified and he rose from the dead. And in consequence of that, a great company of men and women worship him. The beast will appear to have done the very same thing and will claim an even greater number of nations worshiping him. And so it seems safe to say the beast rises out of the community of nations. He represents the culmination of the power of the greatest empires in world history, that he's a false messiah who excites worship. But we can't pass from this topic without noticing his effect on the global community. Verse 4 says that the whole earth will say, who's like the beast? They will conclude that he has no parallel in human history. Indeed, they will come to another conclusion. They will say, who can fight against him? And we who read this must come also to a conclusion. If our hope rests in the power structures of men or in the political structures of our day, we are easy prey for the Antichrist. No, our hope is not in the kingdoms of men, but in the kingdom of God. As we begin to reflect on the Easter season, we want to help you dig deeply into the significance, drama, and ultimate selfless sacrifice of Jesus. First, listen intently to Dr. Newfeld's new two-week Easter series beginning Monday, March 18th. That can be heard on this station, online at backtothebible.ca, or by downloading the podcast or Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app. Also, we want to encourage you in a special way by offering you Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Easter, as our free gift. In this book, Strobel makes a thorough investigation into three critical Easter questions. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? And did credible people subsequently encounter him? I think you'll find Strobel's book enlightening and deeply inspiring. So call us today for your free copy at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We have described the beast from Revelation 13, 1 to 4. 
Now, verses 5 to 8 give us a picture of what the beast does, that is, his activities. This portion may frighten some believers. See, back in Revelation 9, verse 4, we were told at the blowing of the seven trumpets that believers were given a seal of God on their foreheads and that in those days, God seals his servants so that no harm can come to them. In some ways, God supernaturally protects them. That's because Revelation promises us that we are protected from the wrath of God, but we are not, according to Revelation 13, protected from the wrath of the beast. Indeed, as we trace the activities of the beast, we notice first that he's given authority to blaspheme God, and then second, that he's given the power to conquer the saints, and then finally, he's given the ability to create the first ever world empire. That is, he overcomes all resistance. So let's follow this one step at a time. So first, the beast is given the authority to blaspheme God. Let's read verse 5 again. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The word haughty means boastful, and the term blasphemy means to speak against the divine name and the glory of God. To profane God's name means either to misuse the name or to speak directly against the name. So putting those two words together, haughty and blasphemous, we can expect the beast to be claiming either equality with God or even that he's greater than God. You know, in ancient Rome, it had become common for the emperor to claim the title of deity, so much so that Roman coins would often call Caesar Lord and God. Various cities would compete for the privilege of constructing temples dedicated to the emperor in which people were encouraged to enter the temple and worship the emperor himself. As I said before, this kind of blasphemy is going to be repeated in the last days. But let's not pass over this section too quickly. Notice very carefully those two phrases. He was given and he was allowed. Whatever the beast does is only possible because God, in his sovereign rule over all things, allows the beast to do this. The world is never out of control. Evil only grows to the extent that God, because of his greater purposes, allows it for the present moment. Now we go on. First, we notice that the beast claims either equality with God or that he himself is a God. Second, he's given power to conquer the saints. That's what the first part of verse 7 says. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, please, when you read this, don't think about a conflict on a battlefield. Rather, as we've seen in the other visions we've discussed in this section, Satan is enraged with the followers of Jesus. Now, Satan installs his beast as a world ruler, and under Satan's inspiration, the beast turns his guns on the people of God. And we are led to understand that he's overwhelmingly successful in this enterprise. Look back at Revelation 11, verse 7. There the beast is said to conquer the two witnesses. Indeed, the text there says he made war on them and conquered them. That is, he killed them. I take it that's exactly the situation in the last half of the Great Tribulation. The Antichrist is wildly successful in persecuting, killing, and destroying the saints or the Church of the Savior. See, I take this to mean that the persecution against the Church is so severe at the end of the age that it's almost completely destroyed. I say almost 
because against the statement in Revelation 13, verse 7, are Christ's own words that his church would never be destroyed. See, I think about the situation in China in the 1960s. Apparently, a delegation came back to the U.S. on a fact-finding mission, reporting that there was no church left in China at all. Mao's widow and the gang of four had decimated the church. We now know, of course, that the church went underground and not only survived, but that it was in fact growing even under such hostile conditions. But again, as before, we've noticed that all of this happens because of the permission of God. God is not on his heels in this fight. He has great and grand purposes at stake. Now to verses 7b to 8. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, so much could be said of this. The first, perhaps, and most obvious is that the authority of the beast is universal. He builds a global empire and causes the world to submit to him. You know, in the past, emperors and kings and dictators have all built empires, but no empire was ever global. You know, eventually, empires fall. Often, it's because they become greedy and they overextend themselves and then can't contain all that they now rule. And so their empires fall apart. Enemies rise up. You know, it was the Emperor Augustus, in order to prevent this, tried to draw a border around the Roman Empire to keep it from expanding any further. He thought that would stop it from decaying. Well, it did for a time, but as we all know, Rome eventually collapsed. But where others have failed, this one succeeds, but only for a short period of time. As fascinating as all of this is, I want you to pay attention to an important detail here. The beast causes the entire world to worship him with one exception, the elect. Those chosen by God do not. You know, here I'm reminded of Jesus' words, and they're recorded in John 10, verses 27 to 29. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, at the very heart of this matter is a glorious truth, sometimes called the perseverance of the elect. You know, one of the marks of those whom the Father has chosen from eternity past is that they persevere. Yes, they may sin. Yes, for a time, they may even need revival. And at times, they may be deeply discouraged, but they will not be lost, and they will not follow the beast. And here's the glorious truth. Those of us who are born again don't persevere in faith because we're so able to persevere, rather because Christ will never let us go. What a glorious truth. We, of all the people of the earth, simply do not belong to the Antichrist. Now, having described the beast and then showing us what he does in his activities, John next tells us the believer's response to the beast. Verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. 
The passage about captivity in the sword is a very loose quote taken from Jeremiah 15:1-2. You know, in that passage, Jeremiah had been pleading to God that he might spare Jerusalem from the impending Babylonian invasion. And God stops Jeremiah and he tells him that that even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before him and, and plead for this people, his heart would not go out to them. Well, Jeremiah is alarmed and he says, but Lord, where will your people go? And God answers, those who are for pestilence to pestilence and those who are for the sword to the sword and, and, and so forth. But in Revelation chapter 13, 9 to 10, the situation is different. God is not punishing his people for their sins, but he is calling for them to identify with Christ in his sufferings. When persecution comes, be prepared to accept God's design for your life. If he calls you to be arrested or if he calls you to be killed, nonetheless, be at peace with his calling for your life. And with that news comes the encouragement. The passage ends by saying, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So how are we to endure? Well, several things. You know, unlike Neville Chamberlain with Adolf Hitler, we utterly refuse to sign a peace treaty with the Prince of Darkness. We know we are at war and we will fight, and we will fight until Christ returns again. And secondly, We also know that the final chapter has not yet been written. After Jesus was crucified, the story doesn't end there. Resurrection follows. The word to believers here is clear. Be prepared to endure the day of evil, for evil has but one day, and before us lies a great eternity. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. John, a quick question. Let's talk a bit about tribulation and rapture. Yeah, such an important question. And I know, Ben, that this is a place where all manner of well-meaning, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching Christians actually disagree. So I put it this way. If you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, then what we're speaking about in this text deals with saints who have come to Christ during the tribulation. If you think the rapture is afterwards, you're talking about saints in the tribulation. So, so either way, maybe we could all just cool our jets and continue to listen to what the scripture actually says and, and let those differences not divide believers who love Christ together and are seeking to be faithful to him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. 
please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today.